And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. That's Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity that we have to sit beneath your word. And Lord, I pray that you would do as you've done before, that you would take your son and that you would placard him before our eyes so that we would, as it were, fall in love with him all over again, that we would love our Savior, that we would be able to sing, if ever, I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, as you can see, we've diverted from our normal study in the confession, and that's purposeful. And as I think about it, we probably won't be back in the confession for several weeks. But as I thought about this day in particular, I did so with great anticipation I was excited about being back with you all after being out of town last Lord's Day. I was excited about the blessing of being able to baptize two into our membership. I was excited about having guests with us. And so as I began to think about the evening service, I wanted to bring a message that would hopefully conclude the day in a way that was commensurate with all of the excitement that I felt, and the only way that I know how to do that from the pulpit is just to try once again to extol at least one of the excellencies of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I've entitled this sermon, Our Pitiful Savior. Now in modern vernacular, we typically use the word pitiful to describe the object of pity, as if we saw a beggar on the street and we, we said, boy, his condition really is pitiful. That's not what I mean when I refer to Christ as our pitiful Savior. The other use of the word pitiful, quite out of usage these days, is to describe the one who feels the pity. The pity haver, we might say. In this sense, the word pitiful means full of pity. That's what I mean when I call Christ a pitiful Savior. He's full of pity. Now, if we look at our text, and if you have headings in your Bible, and maybe you don't, but you just know what happens in Matthew chapter 21. The very next chapter, we go straight into what we call the triumphal entry 
of Christ into the city of Jerusalem. And if you know about the storyline of the Gospels, you know that the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is the beginning of what we typically call Passion Week, the last week of our Lord's earthly ministry leading up to His crucifixion. This begins Passion Week, and this week is going to conclude with Jesus laying dead in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So as we read here in verse 29 of a crowd following Jesus, sort of like an entourage, that we think to the next chapter, what's going to happen? We know another crowd is going to, and part of this same crowd is going to carry Him joyfully into the city, and they're going to sing their hosannas to Him. By the end of the week, the crowd is going to be shouting for His crucifixion. He's going to be wrongfully charged in a mock trial. He's going to be beaten almost to death. He's going to be nailed to a cross. And He's going to die for the sins of mankind not long after this little scene that we're seeing here. So we're we're nearing the end of Christ's earthly ministry. And we see that as the Lord made His way toward Jerusalem, as we know His His face is set as hard as a stone to accomplish the work that His Father had given Him to do, there were these two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now Mark and Luke tell us that one of these men was named Bartimaeus. And they heard the commotion of a crowd going by, and they asked some of the passers-by, what's happening? They can't see. What's the commotion? And the response was that Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. Now just think about the simplicity of that description if you read the other narratives. What's going on? What's the commotion? Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. His name is, in fact, Jesus. That's the name that his mother gave him. He did, in fact, hail from the town of Nazareth. This is a a very earthy description. Jesus of Nazareth is walking by. But then we see in our text, and, and the other Gospels bear this out as well, when the men hear Jesus of Nazareth is walking by, they hear that, verse 30, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord... Have mercy on us, Son of David. They didn't cry out, Jesus of Nazareth. They cried out, Lord. They refer to Him as the Son of David. Lord being a title of great respect. It is the New Testament equivalent to Yahweh for the the Jewish people. The title Son of David, we know that's loaded with historic uh, prophetic hope and expectancy. According to God's covenant with David, the premier Son of David would, uh, would be established as King of Kings and be seated at the right hand of Yahweh and would rule forever over everything. Son of David, for these men, was synonymous with calling this Jesus the Messiah, the promised one. So they heard Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. These blind men immediately recognize Him as God's promised Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, the eternal King. Now notice what they requested. Verse 30 says that they asked, Have mercy on us, son of David. In verse 33, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now we'll come back to the idea of mercy, but for now, notice, or just note that they request mercy. Most of us have heard the, the, the definition, well, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. They, they ask for mercy. Jesus responds with, What would you have me to do? Not what would you have me withhold from you, you not getting what you do deserve. What would you have me do? And they ask for a miracle. Give us some mercy 
what would you have me to do? Give us a miracle. Open our eyes. In their minds and in the mind of the Lord, mercy is inseparable from an action which manifests the mercy. They, they would not have been happy, I don't think, if Christ would have said, yes, I do feel mercy toward you. Good day. And just kept walking. That's not what they wanted. He knew that's not what they wanted. Nor do we read that he felt mercy and just kept walking. They cried out for mercy. He asked, what do you want me to do? They, they need and are asking for a specific manifestation of the mercy of their Lord, the son of David. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 34. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. So He responds with the miracle. He touched their eyes and they were healed. He answered their request, which implies that He did in fact have mercy on them. Just for a second, consider the infinite condescension in this one little truth. He touched their eyes. The Lord of glory who created the eye wrapped in the nature of a man, complete with eyes of his own and flesh like ours, reaches out and touches these men. He who from eternity could not be touched is here felt touching men. And I wonder how long of an instant it was that his hand touched their skin while they were still in darkness. I don't know. But they felt his touch. This is just a snapshot of the incomprehensible sympathy of our Lord that He would voluntarily enter into the nature of a man taking our nature to Himself and even touch other men. What's more, notice the state of soul with which He acts. Verse 34, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. That's the way the ESV translates it. That, the word that's translated here, in pity, is what's called a contemporaneous participle. In other words, the touching happened along with contemporaneous to the pitying. The touching itself was an outflow and an expression of pity. It was in the state of soul that we would call pity. In that, He reached out and touched their eyes. Now think about how this act is contrary to the way that these men had just addressed Jesus. This is their Lord. This is their King. This is the very Son of God who's come down from heaven. We might ask, how far below the pay grade of a king is it to busy himself with the physical affairs of just a couple beggars in, in his citizenry? I think we would all agree after 20 months, the government doesn't really have a whole lot of business in the affairs of the health of its, of its citizens. But here is a king. How often would we expect a king, let alone the Lord, to come and lay his hands upon men? Now, we would expect that a father would, would take up his child, his, his son, who scraped his knee. We would, we would imagine a father would come up and scrape his son, or pick his son up and, and bandage his knee. We would expect a mother to nurse her own infant. We might expect friends to embrace in a hug. I don't think any of us would be surprised if we saw acquaintances shake hands with one another. But how rare is it to see the highest authority in the land to come and interact in, in this way with common citizens, especially those of the lowest social sphere, blind beggars, outcasts 
of society, very contrary to what they had or how they had addressed him. At the same time, and this is the primary point that I want to draw out this evening, think about how this scene does so perfectly comport with Jesus' status as Lord and King. Remember, they requested mercy. Mercy assumes that there is a disparity between these two parties. One is high and one is low. And so the fact that Christ acted in pity, that, that, that word, their synonyms, they, 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 it manifests this disparity between the two parties. He is high in rank and in majesty. Lord, Son of David, they are low in rank. They are in need. And it says, And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. He had mercy on them and He acted. He acted in true pity. It's out of a true, sincere, inward affection that Christ, the highest, has acted on behalf of these men, the lowest. That's true pity. So it's very strange that we, we, would, ne- we would rarely expect to see this in our society. And yet, this is the way pity has to be. There has to be one high. There has to be one low. And so we see in our passage just one example which illustrates a great truth. In having Christ as our Lord and our Redeemer, we have one pitiful Savior. Now I've already alluded to the meaning of that word pitiful. To say that our Savior is a pitiful Savior is not to say that He deserves our pity, but that He Himself is full of pity. The word that's used here for in pity means literally to be deeply moved with compassion, specifically within the innermost parts of a person. Now for our... Well, in the ESV it translates it here in pity. Almost every other time that this word is used in the ESV it's translated compassion, except for one, I think. As we've seen, these blind men asked for mercy... Jesus responded to the request in pity or compassion. For our purposes this evening, I'm not going to try to distinguish between all these words, mercy, pity, compassion, because they are all synonyms variously translated throughout the Old and New Testaments. Both pity and mercy carry the idea of one who is above looking down on another and being moved to sorrow themselves because they see the suffering of another. The word compassion, calm, together, or with, and passion, affection. It's, it's together passion or, or fellow feeling. That's compassion. Pity is defined as compassion, kindness, or a disposition to mercy. Compassion accompanied by some act of charity or benevolence. So we could say compassion could just be a fellow feeling, whereas mercy, as we see in the narrative, is usually accompanied by some act that displays the mercy. One has said mercy has a hand to supply as well as a heart to pity. So mercy leads to actions when the heart is full of pity. Why am I saying all that? My point is, these terms, mercy, compassion, pity, 
They're such near synonyms that I'm not going to take the time tonight to try to divide them all up. I'm going to pile them all up into, into one idea, one description of Christ. But in our text, in the ESV, this word is translated in pity. And so I'm just going to continue to describe Him as our pitiful Savior. One who is full of pity. A deep internal fellow feeling aroused by observing the suffering of another. If you have pity, you look at somebody and they're suffering. They're low. It's, 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 uh, it's metaphorical. Imagine them low. You're not suffering. You're, you're above the suffering. You're high. And if you were going to have pity, you, in a sense, behold one below you in a particular state of suffering... And even from your high position, you're not suffering. But as you behold them, seeing their condition actually brings you down with them so that inwardly you feel with them. You suffer with them. And you are led to act in some way to try to relieve them. That's pity. It's in that sense that I say in having Christ as ours, we have one pitiful Savior. He who from everlasting had no inward parts to be moved and who according to His divine nature still has no parts or passions, He humbled Himself, took on flesh, took on inward parts as well as a reasonable human soul and rather than maintaining some unmoved distance from the creature, He subjected Himself to being movable in His inward parts as a man. He came to enter into and undergo the deepest felt sympathies of human experience. The term in our text, again, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes. The word is a passive verb, which means that Christ was, in a sense, acted upon. He so humbled Himself and shared our nature that to see His fellow man, get this, God the Word, looking upon His fellow man, He saw His fellow man. He sees His fellow man when He sees us. And seeing these men suffer, it moved Him to pity them. He was moved. He had eyes, and yet He had never been blind. So He could only imagine what it must be like to be blind. And when they cried out for mercy, in pity, He touched them. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. Now as we saw this morning, when we behold the man Jesus, both in word and in deed, we are seeing the glory of God displayed on the earth. We're seeing the fullest expression of God's own godness on display. So we ought not to think that there are two gods in the Bible. That, that wrathful and vengeful God of the Old Testament. And then finally, lo and behold, here finally comes a, a pitiful Savior in Christ in the New Testament. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Anybody who spent any time reading their Bible knows that what we see Christ doing here in this story is a real manifestation of the true glory of the compassionate, merciful, pitiful God of the Bible. God describes His own self in the text I read this morning. Exodus 34, 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love. Now in that text we have two words. Merciful and then steadfast love, which is also sometimes translated mercy. Now they're different Hebrew words, but they're, they're synonymous in a sense. Again, we, we could pull them and, and dissect them if we wanted to, but, but for our purposes they're synonymous. He's merciful and abounding in mercy. This is who He is. Our God is abounding, overflowing, running over with mercy, with pity, with compassion. Numerous are His mercies. New every morning are His mercies. What a pitiful God He is that He has these, these mercies overflowing, running out. An example of this is in Nehemiah chapter 9 when Nehemiah is recounting how God has dealt with Israel. Nehemiah 9, 27 and 28, he's praying. He says, Therefore you gave them into hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Over and over. Now think about that in light of our definition of pity. One who is high outside of the suffering, looking upon one who is low in the suffering, and is moved by what they see so as to act. It says, their enemies made them suffer. They're low. They cry out. God hears from heaven. He's high. And He rescues them according to His great mercies. Their enemies had dominion. They're low. God hears from heaven. He's high. He delivers them again. The, the image is that God is in pity, stooping down to take hold of the suffering and to lift them up out of their suffering. As Psalm 116.5 says, Our God is merciful. That's, what he, that's who He is. Many times we sin and we imagine that God is waiting around the corner to execute vengeance. And so we don't run to Him quickly with our sins. Why? Unbelief. We think Him to be something other than pitiful. Something besides merciful. We think He won't pity us. But the proverb tells us a different story. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy or will find mercy. It's the very opposite of the way that we typically act with our sins. We think, oh, I've sinned. I've got to run and hide from the vengeful God. The proverb says that actually does more harm than good. That's not going to help you at all. God says we ought to come to Him forsaking our sin. And when we do, around that corner, we will find mercy. For those dabbling in sin... Warring against besetting sins, or maybe you're still in the clutches of sin without God at all, whatever your condition, think about this. Who is it that waits around the corner if we will take our sins to Him? It's our pitiful Savior. He's full of pity, full of mercy, full of compassion. That's who He is. Now you might 
say, well, I'm not sure I really like that imagery of God waiting around the corner. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. He is waiting. That's what He does. He waits to show mercy. He's ready to be gracious. It's who He is. It says, therefore, He exalts Himself to show mercy. So if pity or mercy require one who is higher to look down upon those who are suffering, God says, okay, I'll go even higher. I'll exalt myself even more. Why? So that I can show even greater pity and then exalt myself for my great pity, for my mercy, immeasurable pity. Nobody has more pity than God. There's nobody more pitiful than God. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. Can you even contemplate all that He has made? How much is that? How how might we begin to quantify all creation? We haven't even begun to discover the breadth of creation. We we, we can't quantify it. We We can't understand it. And yet... God's Word says that His mercy is over all that He has made. His pity looms over all creation like a cloud of majestic glory. So if we can't quantify creation because we can't even fully survey it, then surely we'd have to agree that God's mercy or God's pity is beyond our comprehension. It's beyond measure. We cannot exhaust it. We cannot diminish it. There's no place so low that someone could go in sin and misery that if God were to reach down to them and pity them, that it would deplete Him of His pity, that He would run out. It's immeasurable. It's vast. Now, it's that very same eternal God who took on flesh and who laid His human hands on the eyes of Bartimaeus and his friend. The God whose mercy is over all heard the request, have mercy on us. And I I don't know Bartimaeus, but I just sort of pictured maybe that Bartimaeus and his buddy had spoken about this before. If he ever comes by here, listen, here's what we're going to do. And maybe he had read the Old Testament Scriptures or had heard them read to him. He knew of the God of the Bible. He knew of the God whose mercy is over all. He says, here's what I'm going to do. If he walks by here, I'm going to put him to the test. Let's call out for mercy. Let's give Him a test case. Show us how merciful you are. The God whose mercy is over all was requested to have mercy. The God who waits to be gracious went to these men and said, Okay, tell me what you would have me do for you. Just name it. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry, that He truly is a pitiful Savior. Matthew 9, 36, when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That, that phrase, had compassion, it's the same word from our text, pity. He pitied them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep. They were down low. They were in a low place. And He pitied them. Our great God and Savior looked at men who had no leadership, who had no guidance, They were the blind, being led by the blind, and He had compassion. He pitied them. He felt for them. He he probably thought to Himself, how would I like it 
If I had no leadership and no guidance and no instruction, how would I like it if I was just wandering like a sheep with no shepherd? I wouldn't like it. And he pitied them in their condition. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. He went, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He pitied them because they needed help. They had brought sick people to him. I said this morning, there's a great blessing in getting nearer to the, the, the mind and the heart of God. And there's no way to get nearer to the mind and heart of God than to see the man Jesus in his interaction. So, so here we have the man Jesus. He's, he's went ashore. He's stepped off of a boat. He sees a crowd. They've brought sick. He has compassion. So just think about the psychology of the man Jesus. He, he sees fellow men in a crowd. And he observes they've got sick people with them. They're, they're carrying people. Maybe they're limping along with people who are injured. Even the healthy amongst them probably appeared exhausted because they've been helping the sick to get to Jesus. And Jesus, as a man, in his thinking, goes through this, this, this process. These people have come to me for help. These people have worked. They've exhausted themselves. They've brought friends and family members to me. Look at them. They're unhealthy. They can't fix themselves. They have no medicines. They have no healing potions. They're helpless. Just like we would look at our own child in a hospital bed with tubes and wires hooked to them. And you just wish, I wish I could do something to to just take them out of this condition. Even if I had to take their place, I would do that if they could just be back to normal, healthy and happy and running and playing. In the same way, God of gods incarnate looked upon this crowd and He could do no other except help them. He had compassion on them. Matthew 15, 32, Then Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Think about it. The eternal Word of God, He's now experienced this thing that we call hunger and eating food and digestion and that whole cycle. He's experienced it now for a few decades. As a man, he looks at his fellow men and he says, I, 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 can't, I can't just send them away hungry. They've followed me. They've come out here because of me. They don't have food. i got to give them food. they got to eat. He pitied them. They were in a low place and he looked down upon them in pity. In a parable that's meant to show us the forgiving love of God for sinners, it said that the master of the servant who owed an unimaginable, unpayable debt, it says of him, Matthew 18, 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. He owed a debt that he couldn't pay. The master was owed a debt. But he did have it within his power to absolve the offense, to let him go. And he acted in pity. The master looks at his servant and he thinks, here's this man, he's got a debt. I know he can't pay it. I don't get anything from him if I throw him in jail and sell his wife and children. How, what would I, how would I feel if, if I was in his shoes? And he pities him. 
and He releases him from the debt. That's a picture of our God pitying us who have a debt of sin we cannot pay. He pities us. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, And a leper came to Him, imploring Him, and kneeling, said to Him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, He stretched out His hand, and touched Him, and said to Him, I will be clean. So here we have a man lawfully ostracized and cut off from society. He's wearing on his very flesh the sentence of death. He will not live long in this condition. And our Jesus looked at him, looked at his sores, looked at his clothes, and he's moved with pity. His inward parts turned in his gut. He, he was moved for this man. He probably imagined what this man must be experiencing. And the thought of this man's suffering brought the man Jesus down to suffer with him. And in pity, Christ brought the man up out of his suffering. He touched him. It's interesting, I think, that he says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will. In our terminology, I want to. The man said, if you want to, you can make me clean. Jesus said, I want to. I want to make you clean. That's what he wanted to do. He didn't act contrary. He wasn't obligated beyond what he desired to do. He wanted to heal the man. As the widow of Nain followed the casket of her only son, weeping as she went, the funeral procession happened to cross paths with the Lord Jesus. Luke 7, 13, When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And you know the story. He raises her son from the dead. It was not Jesus' fault that this young man had died. It's not Jesus' fault that anyone Dies. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. That's our fault. We did that. So this funeral procession is a living, moving testimony and a reminder of the rebellion of mankind against God our Creator, against the Lord Jesus who's watching it pass, and yet he beholds this mother, a widow with no other children. She has no other help. She would now be all alone. She would now be defenseless. She would now have no provision for herself. And he pitied her. He felt bad because of her situation. He wanted to help her out. And so he went down with her and brought her out. And he did that out of compassion, out of pity. Can you even imagine this God? Does not the Lord Jesus confound us when we just... Just stop and think about the things that He does. We struggle to pity anybody but ourselves. This is God in the flesh pitying creatures of the dust. He's pitying them. How far below the pay grade of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is it to busy Himself with the physical affairs of rebellious creatures and yet here we see the highest authority in the land, in the world, in the universe come and interact with common citizens, the lowest of the low, the neediest of the needy, the, the most helpless of the helpless. At the same time, we should say, well, if, if God is a pitiful God, then He must of necessity have the most pity. If we would say pity, is that's virtuous. Mercy is virtuous. Compassion, that, that's virtuous. 
Well, if it's virtuous, then it describes God. That's something that's in God. And if it's a virtue of God Himself, then He must possess it to the infinite degree. How do we know that Christ possesses an infinite measure of pity? How do we know that He is the most pitiful of all? Well, again, pity requires one who is above to look down. Has there ever been one so high as the Most High God? Has there ever been a position higher than that of Christ, who's been exalted to the right hand of God the Father and given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow? Is there anybody higher than Him? Is anyone higher than Creator? Can anyone look down from a more lofty position than He who is the high and lofty One who inhabits eternity? The answer is no. There's none higher. Right? We settled that. Pity requires one who is high to look down. There's nobody higher than Him. Pity requires one to look down at the sorrow and suffering of another. Have there ever been any so plunged into sorrow and misery as the race of mankind? Nope. Nope. We're, we're, the, we're the lowest of the low. Were any ever afforded such high potential who threw it away in pride and evil like we have? Are any so bound up in sin and iniquity as men? Are there any more desperate, anyone more helpless? Are there any more hopeless than the race of mankind? No. There's none lower than us. Pity not only has a heart to feel, but a hand to act. True pity must act with a heart and with a hand. Does any have a heart so enlarged as God's heart? Is there anyone who has a longer arm to rescue than God? Or is there any who has a stronger hand to save than God? Has any ever bore such a mighty right hand than God our Father has borne in Christ? No. There's none higher than Christ. There's none lower than men. There's no one more able and willing to save than Christ. Therefore, there has never been and never will be a more pitiful Savior than Christ. There's no... There's no quantifiable measure of pity that could out-pity our pitiful Savior. He's the highest, reaching down to the lowest and doing the most work for us. Now if we might for a moment spiritualize some of the acts of pity of our Lord, or as Austin would say, actualize some of the acts of pity of our Lord, it might help us to see just how good this pity is for us. Because you might say, well, I'm not blind, I don't have leprosy, I'm not sick, I'm not limping, and uh, my, my only son is not dead, and I'm not starving. How does this pity help me? Well, I think it's safe to assume that though Christ's pitiful deeds were real, they were end-time acts that took place, and they, are, they happened just as they are recorded. We also know that many of the physical or natural sorrows which ail mankind are often used to point to greater spiritual ailments. So when we see Christ's pity for sheep with no shepherd, people with no leader, we're reminded of our lost condition apart from Him. All we like sheep have gone astray each to our own way. We leave the safety of the shepherd. We've gone off into a spiritual wasteland. We are harassed by sin and Satan. We are helpless. We are defenseless. Apart from a pitiful Savior coming after us, we would be lost. He pities us in that condition. Christ's pity for the sick 
is a reminder to us of our own sin-sick souls, eaten alive by our own corruption with no remedy. And He pities us in that condition. He desires to save us. He says, I will be clean. Christ's pity for people without physical food reminds us of our condition in spiritual death apart from Him. We have no spiritual life-giving sustenance apart from Him. He pities us. He's not willing to send us away hungry. He longs to see us fed. He doesn't want us to wander off and starve. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When we see the Master forgiving His servant an insurmountable debt, we're reminded of God's pity to us, who owe to Him a debt we cannot pay. For all of eternity we could not pay it back, and yet He pities us, and He is able to release us because of Christ's atoning death. He releases us from that debt. When Christ pities a man lawfully ostracized and cut off from society because of leprosy, we're reminded of our condition in sin, eaten within and without, consumed, festering, falling apart because of sin. That's what leprosy does. You know, it just your flesh just corrodes and rots away. He pities us. Christ's pity for the widow of Nain reminds us that when we look at our children or other near relations and we see that they are in a state of sin and misery, that they're dead in trespasses and sins. And when we weep for their souls and we tarry at their side with the gospel, Christ has actual pity for us and for them. He's a pitiful Savior. He's not above human sympathies. He's more human than any of us. When we weep over the souls of our children, Christ says, I get it. They're your fellow men. They're my fellow man. George Swinnick says, The blessed God has a multitude of mercies to answer the multitude of the creature's miseries. It was God's pity that kept Jonah from going to Nineveh. We often say, well, well maybe we have other explanations, but it's interesting in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah says, This is why I made haste to flee for, to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. Why did he run away? I knew you'd save him. I knew that's what you'd do. Why? Because that's what he does. He's merciful. The, the most wicked nation that Jonah could imagine. He says, I know good and well when I go to preach to those people, you're going to save them. You'll relent from the disaster. And he didn't want to do it. People object and they say, well, my sins are just so many. So what do you do? You're going to go somewhere else? Do you think that there's going to be more pity for you amongst the damned in hell than you're going to find in Christ? You think that you're going to find anyone who has more pity on sinners than Christ? That's absurd. How pitiful is our God that He would hold out His hands of beckoning salvation for nearly 6,000 years Beckoning men to come to Him. That's pity. Beyond our comprehension. He's a pitiful Savior. He pities men. Three points in of application. Number one, adjust your thinking about God. Maybe you've not thought about our Savior as being so pitiful. Adjust your thinking. Read it again. Read the Scriptures again. 
page after page after page after page of pity, mercy, over and over again, poured out constantly. They rebelled. I had pity. They rebelled again. I had pity. Constantly. This is who He is. If you don't believe this, if your, if your mental image of God is not this, adjust it. Because this is who He is. Secondly, pursue a sober assessment of your condition. If pity is extended from on high to we who are low in sorrows and suffering, then a fresh, sober assessment of your own condition, your own sins, your own weaknesses will do you some good. If, if, you're, if you're in your thinking, your, your self-assessment, if you're beginning to float up close to God, you're, you're moving out of the realm of pity. The problem is God's a pitiful God. You're, you're moving out of the realm of, of the way that He actually works and acts. So assess yourself. Just, just labor to have God revealed to you just how low you really are. And you'll see how high God really is. You'll see how far down He really has to come every day to come help you. And you will see afresh how pitiful He is. And you'll be able to rejoice in who He is. Thirdly, make use of this pitiful Savior. Make use of this pitiful Savior. Are you low in sorrow? Are you low in sufferings? Are you low in sins? Maybe you feel like you're sinking even lower all the time. Call upon the name of the Lord. Call out to the pitiful Savior. He's so full of pity. He's abounding in mercy and compassion. He's waiting to be gracious. He's exalted Himself to show compassion. Years ago, a book came out, The Prayer of Jabez. It was really popular. They should probably write a book called The Prayer of Bartimaeus. I think this would be a good one to borrow. Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. That's a good prayer. Pray that. That's pray in Scripture. Lord, have mercy on me. If you think you're above calling out for mercy, go back to point number two. Reevaluate yourself. Pursue a sober assessment. Make use of our pitiful Savior. Use Him and use Him to the fullest extent. I promise you, you will not deplete Him of His pity. You will not use His pity. There will be plenty left for the rest of us. Use Him as a Savior. He is a pitiful Savior. Let's pray and we'll sing.